Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and good to see you all. Mark chapter 14 this morning. One of the things as you're turning there that's interesting, of course, about prophecy, you know, the Old Testament prophecies had pointed to Messiah, the things that we know that he would be, where he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, you know, how his life would go that he would die, how he would die, all of those things, the wonderful promises, prophecies that we cling to because they assure us, of course, that no one other than Jesus Christ could have been the Messiah, could be Messiah. But something also that you may not know a whole lot about as it relates to prophecy, because there isn't a lot of this in prophecy, but prophecy also spoke to how Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, the Messiah, would feel as well. Take Isaiah 53, for example. Let me just quote a portion of it. It reads this way, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in this prophecy in Isaiah 53, fulfilled in large part by the events that we're going to look at this morning in our text, once again we're reminded from Hebrews 14 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. He does. Jesus Christ knows how you feel. He understands what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be denied. He knows what it's like to be defamed. He knows what it's like to be disparaged and demeaned. And he knows what it's like to have those things happen to him, even from the people that were closest to him. And because of that, here in our text this morning, we get a very real glimpse into the very real human side of Jesus, that his foreknowledge, of course, always still God in the process, though, coupled together with the very real human side, his foreknowledge of the things that he was about to face is going to have a tremendous, tremendous effect on him in our passage here this morning. You can never overlook the personal nature of our God. Our God is a personal God. Our God is a relational God. You think about it, right? He's about relationships. Salvation is brought about by a relationship found in Jesus Christ. We can only be reconciled to God through that relationship. The only thing that can be eternal in this lifetime are relationships. And so it's interesting to me as we look at this most dramatic scene, I mean, this is drama in the highest way in scriptures, in this Gethsemane experience that Jesus brings his disciples in with him into the garden of Gethsemane. In fact, he has them sit down in a certain place. He goes a little further, but we're told in the text that he's going to bring Peter, James, and John with him. Not that they would pray, with him, but that they would just be there for him, that they would just sit there with him during the time. I find that fascinating to me in perhaps the most intense moment in the life of Jesus. I say even 
before or even after this particular scene that Jesus would de desire companionship, that friends would be with him during this time. He told them, stay here and watch. And what we're going to see this morning is just in that small request that he made of these disciples that they were unable to do it in the most pivotal and most stressful hour of his human ministry, they were unable to just sit there and hang with him for just a little while, despite what they claimed last week, as Peter said, I'm willing to go to death for you. And they all said, likewise. It's bad enough that, as we know, the whole world is essentially about to turn their back on Jesus Christ, but you would have thought that at least his closest confidants would have been there to stand by his side. And so the emotion, it's filled with it here. The distress that was brought about by what was happening and what he knew was going to be happening just within less than 24 hours is clearly taking a toll on him now. Again, as the scene is said, I mean, we're right there, by the way. I know it seems like it's taken a while to get there, but it's Gethsemane this morning. It's Peter's denial next week. It's the trials. And then it's the cross. We got two chapters left. I mean, three, six months tops, and we'll be done with this book. We'll see. But in chapter 14, we know that the religious leaders are looking for a way to arrest Jesus without causing a, quote, uproar, right? They want to do it on the down low. They don't want to attract attention to what they're doing because still at this point, Jesus is immensely popular among the common people. So enter Judas. Judas potentially could be someone who could give them insight as to where they might be able to get their hands on Jesus in a way that would not attract a lot of attention. And so, verse 32, it says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And Luke's gospel tells us, John 18 tells us, that this is a place that Jesus and his disciples would have frequented often. And so Judas then would have been aware of this place. It's quite possible, remember when Judas left after Jesus identified him, we know from one of the Gospels that Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. It's quite possible that Judas brought the troops that were coming to arrest Jesus to the upper room first, and then as a backup plan, when they weren't there, because Jesus had bought enough time, he did not tip off to Judas where the upper room was before it happened, where they were going to have uh, the Lord's Supper that night of the Passover. Uh, so Judas was not in the know on that. That Judas went and he went there first and then as a backup plan he knew, well, they got to be in Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane there means olive press. And it would be here that an, they, they had an olive grove where uh, olives would be crushed or squeezed, so to speak, to get the, the oil out of the olive. I guess that's how they make olive oil. Who knew that? I didn't know that. You probably did, but I didn't know. And so in the garden, though, uh, Jesus also, I think it's uh, emblematic that uh, he would be crushed here. He would be squeezed. It's where he would be readied. His heart would be readied for what would be taking place. Verse 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. And just a reminder, you already know this, but Jesus Christ, of course, was no victim of circumstance. He was not some unknowing sacrificial 
animal. His soul here, it says, exceedingly sorrowful unto death, exactly because he knew what lied ahead. That's why he was sorrowful. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that he was going to the cross. Exceedingly sorrowful. I think in Matthew's gospel, uh, it says that he was deeply distressed. Here's the Holy Spirit, right, who is the author. And he is in some way here trying to translate uh, the feeling that Jesus Christ has at this moment in time into human language. you got omniscient God, Holy Spirit, just as omniscient as the Father and the Son. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's got the best vocabulary that there is. And it's like he ransacks the universe to try and capture the wording somehow that would depict exactly how Jesus is feeling and what it was that was squeezing or crushing him in these moments here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not that we can ever fully get it anyway. I think that's part of the point. Words just don't do it justice. Even in our own lives, whatever we feel or don't feel, no one can ever really know. I don't know if we'll ever know what it was like for Jesus to be going through what he was going through here in these moments. Why was he going through this? Why was he experiencing? What was causing this distress? What was causing him to be exceedingly sorrowful? Well, could it be, as we saw last week, his knowledge of the fact that his friends would turn their backs on him, potentially? And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Could it be his knowledge of the physical agony that he would endure on the cross? That's certainly possible as well. Could it also be that he knew that there was a spiritual horror that would come from being on the cross? As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that he who knew no sin became sin. And what would that be like for Jesus Christ to become sin at that moment in time? Again, maybe only God himself will ever know the answer to what Almighty God, who never knew sin, what it would be like for him to become sin on our behalf. It could be any or all of those things. But we know that it was distressful. We know it caused sorrow. Hebrews 5 says, vehement cries and tears were offered up by Jesus. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us such agony Jesus was under that his sweat became like great drops of blood. So verse 35, he went a little farther and fell on the ground. I mean, his legs buckled, I guess, or he just collapsed. No strength, just sapped from him. He's carrying, as we know, a very heavy weight here. He's carrying the weight of the world. It's a weight that would bury him literally and ultimately. And he prayed that if it were possible, you might want to circle that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And what exactly that exchange really represents and means, I think is still somewhat of a mystery as far as I'm concerned. Uh, to know exactly what Jesus was communicating there to the Father in that conversation. I know there are those that think that Jesus was asking to avoid somehow the death on the cross. And I'll speak to that in a minute. But like if there was any other way to accomplish salvation for humanity, some kind of a plan B, so to speak, that he would be all for it. Of course, on a side note, I think it's important to note that by definition then, that eliminates any other way, right? 
He said, if it were possible, and you read through the whole passage, and what's the response from heaven? Silence. Because there was and there is no other way. And anybody who thinks that there is another way then somehow has to explain what becomes inexplainable as it relates to Gethsemane. Gethsemane makes no sense at all whatsoever if there was any other way. Now, having said that, back to the previous point, I do not believe that Jesus here is praying to avoid death as a means of paying the price for the sins of humanity. I mean, here is Jesus. He was born to die. We know at his birth, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the very same linen bands that they would wrap corpses in, right? As a picture of the fact that he was born to die. Revelation 13 calls him the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before it had happened, it had always happened. John 17, Jesus praying, he said, the hour has come, glorify your son. He prays to the Father that glory would come in his crucifixion. In John 12, Jesus said, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He never tried to escape the reality of the cross. He was always pointing the disciples to it. This was the aim of his mission. I do not believe personally that death on the cross is what Jesus is speaking of there in the quote cup that he's asking would pass from him, but instead the pain and the rejection and the wrath that he would experience in the process. And though it would seem as we're gonna see that later on, on that cross, that Jesus is composed and has peace. In fact, even by the time this morning that Judas shows up, he's composed and God's given him a peace. The, the Father has strengthened him to endure what he is dreading or whatever he is sorrowful about. The Father was never going to take away the cup. Jesus was always going to experience all that came with the cross. And in so doing, he once again models for us something very important because although we cannot relate, we cannot even relate to each other, but we certainly cannot relate to a Gethsemane kind of experience. But as we have our own respective Gethsemane type experiences and we face betrayal or a painful divorce or a loss of a job, where we have a discertainty or disillusionment as it relates to our future, or a loss of a family member, we're taught, we're trained more than ever to rely upon God. And Jesus models that for us when the whole world turns their back on him. Psalm 121 says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. And where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. I mean, he's about to have everybody turn their back on him, and you would think someone, somewhere along the way would stand by his side. But look at verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? You cannot watch one hour? Are you serious? You're the one. How long ago was it that he said, oh, I'm ready to go to death for you? And yet he snooze it. And so Jesus exhorts Peter, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. <laughs> Seen that bumper sticker that reads, uh, lead me not in temptation because I can find the way on my own just fine. <laughs> and here's why. End of verse 38. It says, the spirit indeed is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. And I think with those 10 words, Jesus captures the disciples' failure of him personally and being able to stand by his side because indeed the spirit is willing, very willing, but the flesh is weak. I have a redeemed spirit and so I'm willing. But oftentimes because my flesh has to cooperate, I don't always do the will of God like I should. And so that's why Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray. Here's a brain teaser. If he had watched and prayed, is it possible that he wouldn't have denied the Lord? Well, no, not at this point, because Jesus has already predicted it, so it's going to happen. But would Jesus have predicted it if Peter had been watching and praying? It's just something to think about. He's given us the key to victory there by saying, watch and pray. Prayer is such a weapon that we have at our disposal that God has given us. And almost always, victory is won before the crisis, before the temptation comes, because we have been praying. It was Chuck Smith, I think, that used to say something along the lines of, you can do more than pray after you prayed, but you really can't do any more for God than pray until you've prayed. I think it's so important to remember that prayer is like a bringing a gun into a knife fight. It Never say, oh, all we can do is pray. Are you kidding? That is the thing that you have, probably the most powerful weapon that you have is prayer to fight the battle that there is. Kind of reminds me, of, you know, well, you know, whatever, but Indiana Jones, remember that scene, right? And, and there's that swordsman, he's like some kind of ninja. There's a stand down behind, between Indiana Jones and the swordsman, and everybody lines up to watch it, and he's waving that thing around, and as you first watch it, you're kind of scared. It's one of the classic scenes in all movies, believe me on that, I know. And he just, he just pulls out the gun and blows him away. He's just done, no problem at all whatsoever. I think that we forget that we have like a gun and a knife fight, so to speak, uh, as it relates to prayer. Prayer is the tool that God has given us in the spiritual war that we have. And, and the reason we need it so much is because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need to rely on God's strength and not our own. And again, verse 39, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. <laughs> what would you say? Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. It is enough, and they would get up at this point three times. He says, stay here and watch and pray, and three times he came back, and they were asleep. Showing Jesus, of course, what he already knew, which was that he was going to have to go at this alone, of course. He was going to be on his own. Never was he going to have them. He knew that. He had anticipated this uh, perfectly, and so he had readied his heart accordingly, and the Father had given him peace. And that's what's actually kind of fascinating about this because I think we see the just paradigm shift in the total demonstration of his humanity in Gethsemane. And right now, right about this point here in verse 41, we see this total shift, a different zone, a different focus where our hero, our savior, our champion, Jesus, he picks himself up off the ground and from this point forward he is totally composed he is ready for the battle the absolute um, uh, 
picture of his deity and his excellence in, in terms of just how this shifted in readying himself by seeking the Father and spending time with him here at this point in time, unprecedented in human history. Just from this point forward, just mark this point and this is where it turns around. And the hour has come, he told them. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, we know from John's Gospel that the amount of men, probably because it says it was a detachment that came, with him, which is probably one-tenth of a legion. A legion being about 6,000 men means Judas shows up with like 600 men, probably temple guards or maybe Roman soldiers or a combination thereof, some kind of a religious uh, police force. And notice there they have weapons. They have swords and clubs. John's Gospel tells us also that they had lanterns and torches. You can only imagine the scene. No streetlights back then, right? So this is real dark outside, and you see this mob, you know, maybe swords reflecting from the full moon, gleaming in the nightlight, and then the torches burning in the light. So you're seeing this horde of people coming with these lights. What a scene that would have been. An intimidating, I would think, scene to have seen those men coming this way. But really? 600 men? That's what Judas comes to arrest Jesus with? is really a demonstration, I think, of how little Judas actually knew about the Lord Jesus, despite having spent some three-plus years with him. I mean, the only thing that he did know for sure is that he would find Jesus in this place, in this place of prayer. But he, bought, he brought with him this multitude, this 600-some-on men. Did he not consider for one second that the one who calmed the sea and then proceeded to walk upon that sea might be just a little bit mightier than 600 men? Did he really think that they needed lanterns and torches, that the light of the world might be hiding from them, and that the 11 might have some elaborate ambush set up you know, to take out these 600? I don't know. No such ambush would take place on that night. His betrayer, verse 44, had given them a signal because the religious leaders, they knew who Jesus was, but maybe not this religious police force here. And it was dark outside, difficult to see. So he had given them a prearranged signal saying there, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Luke's gospel says that Jesus greeted Judas by saying, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I always wondered that myself, like why did Judas choose to do that? Did he do that? I mean, I have no idea. Maybe did he think that somehow Jesus wouldn't connect the dots? Or maybe even worse, I mean, how low can you go perhaps at this point, Satan had entered Judas. Maybe could it be that this kiss, I mean, in any culture, a kiss is a sign of affection or friendship or love. Could this be yet another attempt at a dagger in the back to try and discourage Jesus 
from going to the cross. I mean, it wouldn't work, but I don't know. Why a kiss? I don't fall know. But then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword. That would be Peter. He was packing. And he struck the servant of the high priest. That's Malchus, we know. And he cut off his ear. That's a good thing that Peter wasn't much of a swordsman. Peter was a fisherman, of course. Actually, we don't even know that he was much of a fisherman. But he missed, I think. <laughs> I don't think he was going for Malchus's ear, right? And you think, well, that's a good thing, though, right? Because if he had actually got to the head or whatever he would have been in a lot of trouble and actually he might have been in trouble either way potentially the punishment for assaulting the high priest's servant could have been the same and so we know that the other gospels tell us that it was at this point that Jesus stooped down he grabbed Malchus's ear and reattached it to his head now I just wonder if you know Malchus in this passage, there are a lot of people, I wonder if they get saved through what happens by Jesus' actions in Gethsemane. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, my ear gets dislodged from my head, and someone picks it up and blows it off and just kind of attaches it to my head. I'm going to listen to what that man has to say, especially as he's being arrested and he's just composed in this entire situation. Not to mention the the fact that here in this particular instance, Jesus here, I mean, if he had not done what he had done, potentially maybe there had been four crosses the next day, one for Peter as well. And so by Jesus here picking up Malchus's ear and attaching it to his head, as a result of that, uh, there would be uh, no evidence against P Peter would not be tried for any kind of a crime. I mean, all of the evidence would be, well, you know, hearsay, right? what <laughs> so why did he do it why did Jesus do this could it be that he is once again demonstrating his deity absolutely is it possible he's protecting Peter for sure but I think more importantly he healed Malchus's ear who does that who heals some who thinks to heal someone as they're being betrayed and denied and being taken away, bound up, and to be tried, and then to go to a cross and suffer a brutal death on our behalf who thinks to heal someone, is he not really, more importantly, demonstrating for you and I that he was completely in control of the entire situation, and that he had always planned to drink of the cup that the Father had for him, that had always been the plan, it was a plan from the beginning, and he was never going to deviate from that plan, and he wants you and I to know that, just by doing this little simple act. He said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen, Jesus was no martyr. Okay, he did not discover the Christ consciousness. He didn't come to the age of 30 and figure out that there was a calling that God had placed upon his life. He was not a good moral teacher that just unfortunately got wrapped up in some unfortunate plot and then just bravely just looked it in the eye and didn't say anything anyway and just took it. This was the plan. This was always going to be the plan. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He is not surprised by what is going on here. What might be 
a little bit surprising, at least he's going to point it out because it should be a surprise to us, is not that they're going to take him, but how they're going to take him. Take a look. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. What is he saying here? He is not resisting arrest. Trust me. You'll see that in a second. He is not asking for his one phone call or an attorney or anything along those lines. He's saying, look, you saw me daily in the temple. In broad daylight, any time you could have arrested me, but you didn't. You have to come and do this sneaky thing when the whole city is asleep, when it's dark outside, because you and I both know you wouldn't do this in the light of day. It's how a lot of uh, legislation gets passed in governments around the world today, sort of behind closed doors late around midnight or something along those lines because they don't want you to know. And it's the same thing here. He is pointing out their hypocrisy. Now, here's why. I believe he's pointing out their hypocrisy. He's pointing out their hypocrisy because maybe, hopefully, somewhere along the way, this would become conviction for some of those 600 that were there. And again, I would wonder, we'll know, we won't know until we get to heaven, if some of these 600 may have got saved because he pointed out the conviction. And then as the result of the week and as it unfolds and as they see, you know, the phony prosecution that takes place, the brutal exhibition of his torture, the tragic crucifixion upon that cross. And then as they would hear the rumors of his resurrection and a church ignited, a fire lit within them, because of that resurrection, maybe some would look back to this day and the conviction that he had given them and then the result of the resurrection and some of them would choose to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is not trying to resist this arrest here because he says there end of verse 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So he knew that this was going to go according to plan. And part of that, and I think the stinger the stinger here in terms of the scriptures being fulfilled is in verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. They ran for their lives. Now we know Peter and John followed for a while from a distance to see what would happen. But it's not like any of them stepped in and said, hey, if you're going to get to him, you've got to go through me first. Or I've given my life to this man. If you want to arrest him, then you got to arrest me too. None of them did that, like they said that they would. Instead, Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was forsaken by the other 11. He was left to fend for himself, by himself, from every other disciple or friend that he ever had. And then we also know that the multitudes would soon turn on him as well. One of the things I think that is hardest in terms of emotions and feelings that you and I have as Christians in this lifetime is that feeling of being left alone, is that feeling of being forsaken or betrayed. It's got to be one of the hardest and most bitter experiences that we are even capable of feeling in this lifetime, when someone very close to us, who knows us very, very well, who we've trusted, who we've been vulnerable with, when they turn on us, it's just, it can be one of the worst things, and it happens 
all the time. It happens in a marriage. Someone can be married for 10, 20 years and they never get closure fully on why the other one just up and left. It can happen to a parent where a child becomes of age and they rebel. They rebel not just from the authority of their parents, but from the authority of God. It can happen the other way around, to a child. When a parent leaves a child and then their whole life, that child wonders, what did they do wrong that they would be abandoned by their parent? It can happen at work or with a close friend. I remember the first job I had right out of college, the first corporate job I had. I went to training for a couple months with a guy that would become basically at the time one of my, if not my best friends. And he would come over every night, seemingly every other night, and hang out and have dinner with my wife and I. And we would go to lunch each day at work until one day when a couple bucks were on the line for a sales account. And somehow I took the fall and he arranged to have it happen. I'll still remember that he was walking out of the office and his eyes greeted my eyes as I was walking in to receive the bad news that I did not know I was about to receive. I think even the shame alone that he felt prevented us from being friends after that going forward. It can happen in a church. Somehow within a relationship or within friends that you have within the body of Christ and it can sting. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that if it wasn't for those things, even in my own life, if it wasn't for the sting of the feeling that I had at the time of hopelessness in terms of what would be next for me, in terms of my calling and what I would do for God, I, I would never have learned the lesson that God wanted me to learn. I would never have potentially been what I could be in Christ and still cannot be without those lessons without those stings, without that pain, without that feeling of betrayal, because I never would have ever truly learned that I needed to have uh, totally be fulfilled in Christ, that I needed God to be my best friend, that I needed him to be by my side all the time and in all the ways. No one in this world is completely invulnerable or immune to this. No one can escape the potential of being set up to be placed in a spot where you can be let down, where you can be hurt. But here's what we can do. We can imitate the Lord Jesus, just like what he does here. Because here, in spite of the circumstances, like I said, he dusts himself off. He gets back off of his feet. In fact, we're told in John's gospel, he approached the crowd. He approached them. He looked ahead on and he went with confidence. Because believe it or not, despite the the pain of being forsaken or the unfairness of betrayal. God's word, listen, is no more true in the life of Jesus, do you believe this, than it will be in our lives as well. Do you understand that? His word is no more true in the life of Jesus than it will be in our lives as well. How many verses could we point out this morning? We could all stand and share our favorite life verse, which contains the promise from God that we can cling to when our hearts are broken. Things about the work that he does, the calling that he does, the plans that he has in our lives, they are true. Nothing is out of control related to your life. Trust me, you are not the exception to the sovereignty of God in no way, shape, or form. He is no less in control of the events surrounding your life and your circumstances right now that he was 
in Jesus' life. Think about it for a second. He's a sovereign God. Do you think he is any less precise in his plans for your life as he was in the plans for Jesus' life? And if you think that, remember how intertwined Jesus' life was with other relationships of whom those people God was working in. Peter had to deny him, right? Because Peter had to learn a lesson because Peter needed to be a leader once Jesus was gone. And Jesus would restore him as a result of this. And he would learn God's grace in a greater way. Jesus does for us. He models something very simple that you don't think about as much with Jesus. Because you think, well, he is the word of God, and he is God, and he does know all things. But he models for us a simple trust in the word. He models for us a trust in the word of God, in the promises of the Bible. Now, you think about this for a second, because outside of specific revelation in terms of who would be his betrayer, and when they would arrive, think about just the things in this passage alone, in Mark chapter 14, that were fulfilled, that had been prophesied in the Old Testament, as we pointed out last week. Verse 18, that someone would betray him. Verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it, just as it is written of him. Verse 27, all, will, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. That was prophesied by Zechariah also. And then verse 49, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Translation, what Jesus is telling us is that a simple study of the word of God would tell me I don't need to be surprised by what is going to happen tonight. For all the pain and for all the agony that he would experience, he recognized that God's word would have the final say in all of this. And that somehow he would work it together for good. And so the question is for you and me is, will we believe that? Do we believe that this morning? particular set of circumstances or situation that you may be in and you wonder because I do because I ask that question sometimes and I wonder how any good could come of this but can we believe that God still always works things together for good in every situation that all of those things can be for his glory and that God's word and not some Judas but God's word will have the final say in our lives and that whether you want to believe it or not right now that his word and the circumstances of what's happening assures us that he will bring these things together for good and you might think well but God has so many resources at his disposal and he, why can't he just step in now and make this wrong right for one reason and one reason alone and that's because he knows better, and so he knows that our quick fix plan that we would implement to remove whatever it is that is heartbreaking in our lives right now is nowhere near as good or as powerful or as wonderful as the plans that he has, that what he's working on in your life as the result of this. But it's going to take a little bit of time, and you need to give him that time. And you need to trust him in that, even when you don't know. That's the point of faith, that you don't know. But consider that if God could overwhelm the betrayal of Judas and the denial of the disciples and still have all of these things work together for good and go according to his plan, then he is more than able to do that in your life and in my life as well. Amen.
Lord, we thank you and praise you <clears throat> for the text that hits home for us personally. Lord, as probably, well, I would have to say everybody in this room has been hurt, been left on their own. And God, you use that time. You use our bewilderment just our despondency and even time where we're bewildered so that when you meet us when you fulfill what's good as you complete every work Lord you're faithful to do that that then Lord in a more powerful way we become that much more convinced of your sovereignty, your hand on our lives, your plans for our lives, your commission, your calling. We look back at it and we, it's wonderful on the other side of it. But this morning for those that are going through that, they're searching and seeking and allowing you to search, it's hard to see around the corner and we don't expect anyone to, Lord. I, I don't. Sometimes I don't know. I don't right now. In my own life, I don't know, Lord. I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through right now. And yet at the same time, what you've taught me, what you're teaching us, Lord, is that you're not going to fail. Your sovereignty won't fade. Your plans will not be thwarted by the enemy. You will work your purposes, and we can take great confidence in that. We can be bold in our prayers today. In Jesus' name.